Open your Bibles to chapter 11 of the Gospel according to St. Luke. Chapter 11, uh, excuse me, chapter 12. So as I'm thinking about the passage we read today, and it's a, it's a hard-hitting passage. Like, beware is the, the tone of the passage, the concern of the passage. I think of uh, a story R.C. Sproul recounts. He said a friend once asked him, like, what's the big idea of the Christian life? And so he goes, well, I fall back on a theologian's prerogative and I start using Latin terms, kind of helps me out. I said, the big idea of the Christian life is quorum Deo. And so quorum Deo captures the essence of the Christian life. It's a good phrase to have in your minds. Quorum Deo literally means before God or in the sight of God. It's that our whole lives take place in the presence of God, before the face of God. It's as if God were standing right there and looking at you. Under the authority of God, to the glory of God, it means God is present everywhere and therefore we're always under his gaze. It's that God is sovereign over all things, so we submit ourselves and honor his will. It's therefore that we're people of integrity. We aim to be people of integrity. That we don't compartmentalize our lives. That we view our lives, whether at home or church or work or play, as these constant offerings of worship to God, of who we are and what we're doing. Like quorum Deo, or Tripp would say it, you can't wake up in the morning without bumping into God. He's the environment in which we live. Whether we like it or not, we're in God's world. And so I'm meditating on that as I'm looking at our passage and it's such a urgent, solemn passage for us and at the same time it's words of profound grace to us. It's Jesus who warns us because he loves us of pitfalls that are around us. And throughout, he keeps undergirding his warnings with these precious statements of grace and comfort and care. So let's look at Revelation, uh, excuse me, Revelation, how I got there. Uh, Luke 12, 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together so that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear, fear him who, 
after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And the grass withers and the flowers fade and this word of the Lord endures forever to your upbuilding and encouragement and growth and grace. Amen. So if you recall from last week, we finished up chapter 11 and we had a section that started at 37 and went through 54. And in that section, if you recall, Jesus went in and had a meal with the Pharisees and the lawyers. He had this private conversation with them and he gave it to them. Straight out, woes to them. And so in 12.1, we see that Jesus has now emerged from that meal. You wonder how everybody felt after that meal. You hope it was for the spiritual upbuilding, even though hard words, to that group of Pharisees and lawyers. So Jesus is now out in the open and there's this tremendous crowd. I mean, it says many thousands. It's a word that literally means 10,000 people. Can you imagine that many people in a countryside outside a village, like trampling on each other to get close to Jesus? It's often used figuratively for many thousands or innumerable or uncountable multitude. And they're just trampling on you. They have this idea of this pressing close, guarding their little square foot of space to be near Jesus. And we know their motives are mixed. We know a lot of them are just curious. We know the crowd is fickle. Yet in that angst to get close to Jesus... We, we need to see a needy world anxious for a savior. Trampling might this be the one. And we, we need to look at our world who is burdened and anxious and feverish and flailing seeking a savior. Multitudes trampling each other longing for him. However, in the face of these multitudes, Luke says he speaks to the disciples first, first. So before all these people, this huge crowd, somehow he's able to focus in on his 12 and then a wider group of disciples that also followed him and he gave them his priority and his focused attention he aims for the crowd to hear, but they're kind of overhearing him. 
He's mainly concerned about them. And so you, in our passage, which we read, he directs these strong warnings to his most committed followers. It's not mainly for those out there, it's mainly for those right here. And it, it kind of seems counterintuitive to us. Why would he do that? Why do they need it? I mean, they're following him. Well, I'm sure we could say a lot, but one of the things you could say is that when the disciples look at these thousands of people trampling over each other to get close to Jesus, it's pretty clear that right at this moment, Jesus is really popular. Like he's who people want to be around, to hear him and see him. The disciples could think, well, being a disciple of Jesus is going with the culture right now. It's an easy thing. It's a, a, a way of applause maybe, or approval even, if I'm in the inner circle of Jesus. And so Jesus looks at them in the face of this evident interest and gives them a strong reality check. Because essentially he's saying the same crowd that shows so much enthusiasm to be around me at the cost of themselves, this crowd is gonna turn. So don't make following me dependent on a favorable view of the crowd. Persecution's coming. That can't be your motivation. And second, probably in a deeper way, he looks at them and speaks first to them as most committed followers just to say, look, the things I'm about to say aren't just for other people. It's not that other people are susceptible to these deep-seated sin patterns. You are too. You are tempted in the same way. Don't mentally exclude yourself from the big sinners out there. And he needs to say both of those things to us today. You who are here, who've made an effort to be under Jesus' word. Imagine him looking at you and saying, beware. And so four things to be aware of, or beware of. Um, beware first, in the first three verses, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And so again, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees in their home, and now he speaks to the disciples about the Pharisees. It's kind of a recap. And so the warning he gives is really, it grows out of that conversation. Everything we said last week is informing Jesus's mind as he looks at his disciples and warns them of the sin patterns of the Pharisees. And he says to them, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, that sums it up. And so you, my most committed disciples, beware of their attitude because it's not just them. You're susceptible to it too. So leaven, you know, leaven refers to maybe how we make sourdough bread. And some of you make delicious bread. Uh, we use a starter, a small portion of saved dough in which a sugar-fermenting bacteria has developed. We add it to fresh dough and it slowly, gradually, over time, works through it and it breaks it down and it produces carbon dioxide gas which causes the bread to wonderfully, deliciously rise. 
So this leaven is used in scripture for something that's apparently small, but yet works slow, constant, powerful, pervading influence. However, usually it refers to a corrupting influence due to the fact that the fermenting process breaks molecules down. It decomposes the molecules in the dough. So it's normally a negative impact as it moves silently through the whole dough. So this seemingly insignificant, yet really persistent, insidious, potent influence that threatens to work through the group of disciples is hypocrisy. He looks at them and says that to them. And it's the same hypocrisy practiced by the Pharisees and lawyers. It's literally a word that comes from acting. And so it's play acting. It's the evil habit of hiding one's real self behind a mask. I mean, literally as if you were acting in a play. So we think of that and sometimes it's hard for us to see how we do it. For the Pharisees, it was keeping a whole lot of rules, often tiny rules, but really not offering their heart to God. It was meticulously, excessively following ceremonial laws and not really loving people, the harder thing. It was engaging in a lot of religious activity to impress others and not really to worship God. It was to maintain a certain reputation in the community. But hypocrisy is a general idea, it's a, it's a basic sin pattern. And so there are all kinds of ways if you look at your life and assess your life that gradually, imperceptibly, we can slip into. We can occupy seats in a sanctuary and our heart can be miles away and we know it. We can engage in Christian type behaviors while holding on to nursing, harboring, indulging in secret sin patterns. We can confess to love God while not striving or expending ourselves or learning how to really love people. There's a host of ways when we look at our minds and the danger is that we will harden ourselves into that. Some of the men in the church read a book by Don Carson on prayer and there was a quote there that stuck with me that I've, I don't know, I've been kind of chewing on since then. And Carson says this, the unvarnished truth is that what we most frequently give thanks for betrays what we most highly value. If a large percentage of our thanksgiving is for material prosperity, it is because we value material prosperity proportionately. You know, I'm thinking, well, you know, I'll, not only am I convicted of not praying, but now I'm convicted for the content of my prayers. That when it's all said and done, maybe I'm most interested in my health and wealth as I go to God. Am I interested in God really? Do, do praises fill my prayers and a concern for the extension of his kingdom? To what degree is that hypocritical of me? Or Paul David Tripp, in the book we studied in Sunday school last fall, I believe, he, he has this section on progressive Christianity, and we can debate whether we should use that term, but a number of people talk about that, and it's really just a soft liberalism. And he, he says, essentially, it's an authority battle. 
And so we're, we're battling for what's the ultimate authority in my life. And so I may claim God's word as my ultimate authority, while in practice, what effectively is my ultimate authority is my experience and feelings over a given issue or a given desire of mine. And so when I find those things into conflict, what do I appeal to? Do I appeal to the authority of my desires or do I appeal to the authority of God's word, whether I like it or not? When it hurts, when it's uncomfortable to me. What, what if my experience effectively rules and God's word only rules in theory? That's a dangerous place to be. It's a, it's a deep hypocritical mentality of mine that I need to be woken up from. So Jesus warns against hypocrisy, play acting, and then he goes on in this section, well, about how futile it is. Part of hypocrisy is that we think we can maintain the gap or the double life. That's what sin does to us. We're, we have this section of sin that we can tame over here, but we have it under control, and we can continue forward that way and you know, as Tim Fortner often says, and takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and charges you much more than you want to pay, right? So often in this life and in the certainty of the final judgment, our true self is going to be laid bare. That's what Jesus is saying here. You can't hide. And that is an unnerving experience, if you let yourself think about that, then my heart is open to God. Coram Deo. What we think we've covered up gets revealed. What we think we've hidden gets exposed. What we said in the dark gets heard in the light. What we've whispered in a private room, it's a room like a storeroom or a room where you would hide in danger, maybe a storm shelter even. It gets proclaimed in the most public way. The, the point is your heart is laid open. Maybe in this life, certainly in the final judgment, it's gonna be revealed. And so let's have a reality check. We can't live a double life. We're always works in progress, but we got to be real about it. You know, that, it's a scary thing to think, what if like all my thoughts were thrown up on the internet of a 24 hour period? And how humiliating that would be. And yet my heart is that open towards God. He knows it. So Jesus warns against thinking that we can hold this sort of hypocrisy. It's absurd. Be real. Second, beware the wrong kind of fear. And that's 427. So beware the wrong kind of fear. Whom we fear is basic in the Bible. So we slide into hypocrisy because we fear what others will think about us. Therefore, Jesus warns us about the wrong kind of fear. So Jesus says, don't fear those who have power over you, whose power only extends to killing your body. For that matter, we should say in our culture, don't fear those whose power over you only extends to leaving you out or shunning you or not including you or insulting you or canceling you. Don't fear those that only have that limited power. Jesus' concern is that this threat is upon you because you're his follower. Um, but Jesus says as great as that motive of fear 
appears to us and is persecution, the threat to life, don't let yourself be governed by that fear. Don't let it grip your life. And it's real. That's why the Bible talks so much about it. He says, instead of fearing man, you should fear God. And what does he say about that? He says, well, the fundamental choice in scripture, again, is whom shall we fear, God or man? And he gives the reason for it, saying, because God's the one who can not only end your earthly life, he has authority to cast you into hell. That's what Jesus says. And he says it to his disciples. And so we ask, why is he warning his disciples who believe in him about hell? Yet we have to appreciate that of all the New Testament writers, Jesus is the one who speaks about hell the most. The same one whose intestines turn inside out when he sees pain and suffering is the same one who speaks the most about hell. Evidently, he thinks it's very necessary that his committed disciples hear about it and take it to heart. So why? Something Brian Chappell, our stated clerk of our denomination, said last summer at General Assembly, I appreciate it, he, he said it really well. He goes, about Christian motivation, it's important to keep two things in mind. There are a plurality of motivations and there is also a priority of motivations. The heart and soul of Christian motivation is unbelievable gratitude to God for saving us through the cross of Christ. But there are other motivations that we need because sin is so complex and tricky. And one of those motivations is there is a threat of judgment. Well, there are a number of reasons why Jesus threatens his inner circle with judgment. And, and one of them is just that it's true and it's reality. We need to live in the real world and it's a place that's called hell. And without realizing it, our world even witnesses to it. There's a clamor in our culture that all the evils and all the wrongs will be punished and everything made right. There's a clamor for a day of reckoning in the minds and hearts of people in our nation. Underneath that, there's a testimony that hell is real and we're heading towards a final judgment where God will right all wrongs. It's a testament that evil is really evil and that God is really holy and really righteous. He really is, because in our fallen personality, sin quits being evil and God quits being holy. Even more in the midst of this, hell highlights the wonders of grace. Really, there's not a gospel without hell. My sinful heart tends to convert grace into just some kind of fuzzy, indulgent, benevolent tolerance, like my sin doesn't really matter, and I can do what I want, but that, that's not grace. Grace takes the gravity of sin seriously, that it deserves unquenching punishment in hell, 
And grace extends God's, extols God's amazing love in the gospel to forgive those very sins. That to do that, Jesus had to suffer the eternal cost of it. It wasn't just dismissed. Somebody pays. And so we ask, how much does grace cost? Well, the cross of Christ is the measure of grace. The price is what Jesus endures to take unquenching punishment from you and absorb it into himself. And so does your heart not jump out in gratitude? And in this, Jesus' purpose isn't to look at his disciples and create in them this craven anxiety. That's not his point. He does want to warn them soberly against hardening themselves in hypocrisy. That is his point. But a craven anxiety is not. He expresses that he has better hopes for them and better hopes for us. For one, Luke records Jesus saying, my friends, my friends be careful, there is a place called hell. And it's the only time in all the synoptic gospels in which Jesus calls his disciples my friends. It's a signal pronounced, a powerful statement right here, right when we would need it. In the most scary warning of judgment that he would look at you and say, my friend. He's expressing close relationship with them even as he warns them. And in, in effect saying, that's why I've come to guard you from that. And that's why we're walking right now towards Jerusalem. You are my friends and I've come to keep you from that and to take it into myself. And furthermore, then he gives them this precious lesser to greater argument. He says these little birds that are like sparrows, they're so cheap, you get two of them for a penny, and if you get two pairs, you get another thrown in, so it's five. They, they're, they're common and cheap. They're worth nothing. They're a cheap food source for people. And yet, as common and cheap as they are, precious, God doesn't forget them. Like, he doesn't forget them. And furthermore, he's numbered the hairs of your head, which isn't just that he's really good at math. It's not just saying God's smart. The importance of this does not lie in the actual count, but in the fact that God cares enough about his people to know the minutest details of them. You know how you talk to somebody, you start going into the long story, and people kind of said, let's move on. God doesn't. He likes the the minutest details of your anxieties and joys and gifting and circumstances, everything. It's so tender, it's like Psalm 56. Every tear you've cried, he kept in a bottle. So he makes this heartwarming declaration, fear not you're of more value than many sparrows. And what he's saying is God, pays such careful attention to such small insignificant things, if he does that, how much more will he pay tender careful attention to you 
to those things that keep you up at night and that you stew over and you can't get over and that make you sad or your hopes and dreams, how much more you're the ones in Christ who get to pray the Lord's Prayer, my Father. The Father's love for you is measured again by the cost of the Son to redeem you. Don't you know he cares about it all, given the long story? So don't be concerned about those who can hurt your body. Fear God. Yes, he's holy and just. There is a place called hell. Don't harden yourself into hypocrisy. But even more than that, be full of awe and wonder at the one who takes such special care of you. Marvel at him and that he counts you that valuable to him and be enthralled by the one who would forgive and rescue sinners. Third, beware of not acknowledging Jesus. Verse eight and nine, and this is really the heart of it all. It's what we do with Jesus. We can't stay neutral. We acknowledge him or we deny him. Jesus warns us against giving into fear from the threat of persecution and pressure so that we live in hypocrisy and effectively deny Jesus before men rather than acknowledge him before men. And so notice the encouragement first. If we own him, he owns us. We acknowledge him in faith and devotion of our lives, not perfect, we bumble along but we acknowledge him. We just acknowledge him before fellow sinners, mortal sinners. But who does he acknowledge us to? He acknowledges for the angels of heaven. It's like he goes up into the White House and acknowledges us before Congress. But more, there's this vast distinction. He enters the court of heaven, God's throne surrounded by thousands of angels. The crowd is only a reflection of that. And he speaks your name in heaven. And this is the first time Luke speaks of Jesus' heavenly place. He's hinting to them that though he's common and ordinary as he's walking along with them on these dusty roads, he's heading for suffering in Jerusalem, that he's really the heavenly man. That he's the one who occupies the central place in glory He speaks for them and will intercede for them. He's telling them where he's going. That I am the God man, I am the representative, I'm your redeemer. Acknowledge me here, I will acknowledge you there. And we don't have to wait till the final judgment. Luke later is going to say that when a sinner repents, the angels already celebrate you now in glory. So just think real quickly, there's Peter and Judas are in this group. They both deny Jesus. They both fail to acknowledge Jesus. And so what's the difference between them two? And I've really appreciated one commentator saying, well, Peter is a failure of nerve and Judas is a denial of heart or a denial of nerve versus a denial of heart. And Jesus is really warning of the latter. And so Peter denied Jesus in a moment of weakness. He caved into pressure and he later repented in tears and later proclaimed this gospel. But Judas betrayed Christ because Christ wasn't the savior he wanted. He wasn't the kind of savior he wanted. He wanted a different kind of savior. He had different needs and wanted Jesus to do different things for him. So whereas he did regret what he had done, he never turned back to him because he still wasn't the savior he wanted. 
And Jesus is saying, I'm warning you about a life of denial here. For that person, what he will say is, you wanted to live separate from me your entire life, so you will now live in a state of separation from me forever. You chose it, you chose it. I wasn't who you wanted. Finally, beware sinning against the Holy Spirit, 10 to 12. So Jesus says you, you, you can speak against him and be forgiven, but you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit and be forgiven. Now, this, like everybody struggles through this, but why the distinction between blaspheming Jesus and being forgiven and the Holy Spirit and not? Well, I, I agree with those who say part of it at least is due to the stage of Jesus's ministry. Jesus is saying, look, it's kind of understandable as I'm walking around you like a normal guy that you would doubt that I'm really the God man come to redeem. I can kind of understand that in my state of humiliation, in my lowliness, in my commonness, that how can you be God? I can understand that that's difficult. But once Jesus resurrects from the dead, once the Holy Spirit falls upon the apostles preaching, once they proclaim Jesus glorified at the right hand of God, once people come under the power of the gospel, once all that happens and Jesus is in his state of exaltation at the right hand of God, to speak against him then, which means more than just saying a word against him, but to set your life against him, to reject him as a savior you need, that is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit because his very word is to show you the saving mercies of Christ. To live your life like that is to live your life apart from God's only remedy. And therefore, you won't be forgiven. It's to say that common optimism in our culture, to kid yourself, you're gonna enjoy God's favor in the end while rejecting his way to give you that favor. So, why would we reject God's way? Why would we reject such a gracious redeemer? And remember that Jesus taught just a bit earlier that the Holy Spirit is God's greatest gift to you. Of all gifts, he's the greatest one. So why would, you, why would we blaspheme him and not honor Jesus? He shows us Christ in the moment of persecution and pressure. He's with you, strengthens you, gives you words to say. So Jesus looks at us, my disciples, before the world, with much urgency, much concern, and he says, beware, my disciples, my friends, sons and daughters of the Father, you who are worth so much to me, you can't fathom it, whom I delighted to pay for dearly with my own life at the cross. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees the wrong kind of fear, not acknowledging me and blaspheming the spirit. They are real and present dangers, even for you. Beware, I don't want you to stray into them. They have eternal consequences. They have a hardening tendency. And I think of this in light of conversations Alan and I have had with Molly just recently. She's always traveling everywhere. 
and she's planning an extended trip to Colombia by herself in part of it. And so we pull up the State Department map, you know, as you do to see danger zones in the country. Different colors, some are just awful, some are just somewhat tolerable. And we're looking and saying, Molly, please don't go there. Please don't go there. And you see Jesus looking at us and saying, look, in the ultimate sense, there are danger zones out there. Don't go there because I want you with me. Abounding grace. He's not indifferent. He wants us with him. May God add his grace and favor. Amen. Let's stand.